I'm going to try uh, and talk for about 20 minutes or so um, uh, about why I think Brexit happened. And then uh, I'm going to ask five of you to just speak, who I've got, whose names are down here for me, for one minute to tell me why they think, in, for one reason, why Wales voted to leave. Because uh, I, I, I've come here to learn uh, as much as to talk. And then in the last third, I want to share with you some of my, as I say, rather un, un, still exploratory thoughts uh, about where we, in our different countries, I speak as an English European, uh, go from here and how we manage to get back to the European Union. And when I say get back, I want to make this point, if I can sort of skip, if you like, to my conclusion, so you're not uh, sort of in, in, in any doubt about it. Um, and, and this is that um, we can't try to reverse Brexit to go back to where we were before, as in, the, nor can they in the United States. Where we were before Brexit led to Brexit, just as where the Americans were before Trump led to Trump. So we have to change a lot of minds, not simply to try to reverse the decision of the referendum in a way that is democratic, uh, but also to convince people in this country, in, these, in our countries, uh, to want to be European. And this means that we've got to um, engage with what the, some of the core issues of uh, the referendum. And we can't just say to people, oh, we screwed up. We don't know how to do it. We can't afford it. We've got to change our minds. If we do that, we're going to the amount of resentment and uh, uh, cynicism and alienation from politics will be much worse. And the idea that any progressive outcome could emerge from a sort of blundering back into a half-hearted relationship to Europe is a nonsense. And this was brought, back, brought to me um, uh, uh, very, very um, forcefully at a meeting that I was at. Um, I, I live in Oxford, and it was a meeting, an Oxford town meeting, not a university meeting, uh, on Thursday of Oxford for, for Europe. And there were about 200 people in a cold church sitting there for two and a half hours. So quite gripped and a very distinguished panel. Two people who've written books, a uh, member of the House of Lords, the local MP, um, somebody who's running one of the big campaigns, um, sort of semi-national figures. And in that two and a half hours of kind of gripped conversation, the word England was not mentioned. The word democracy was not mentioned. There was much complaints about the referendum and the nature of the result. There was no mention in any forceful sense of the phrase to take back control. This was regarded as some sort of contrived or cunning uh, uh, piece of presentation. And um, the, the underlying desire was, how do we stop it? How do we reverse it? What do we do about it? And that was it. And the sense I got very powerfully from this, I tried to intervene, but I couldn't. Uh, they, not, not because they didn't want to, if I jumped up and down, I'm not, but, but also I felt quite um, removed from the nature of the meeting, these are really good people in a way, if I speak, they're my people. They, 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 they are appalled at the situation that is uh, uh, around them, has developed and is happening to our country. But they weren't asking themselves, why did it happen? There was no sense of saying, what is this force that has got us in its grip? So part of my argument is we have to have a better answer to the question of take back control. We have to say to people, we want to take control. This is how we take control. We don't just blame Europe. Something is going wrong. That is a wrong answer to this cry. 
But there was no sense in which the, the, uh, that they were considering, if you like, a, a, a misguided but democratic moment in terms of the vote. And there was no, no capacity to take a real measure of that force. There was a lot of very interesting discussion about how the government is screwing up and all this and the technicalities of what's going on. And of course, we all read the newspapers with complete amazement, you know, like haven't they thought about Northern Ireland, you know, et cetera. And so there were, and there were very, very good things about what will happen in terms of, of, of citizens' rights and the technicalities. So it was, a, 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 and, and the member of the House of Lords told us all that, you know, the House of Lords was going to deal with all these amendments and people cheered on the House of Lords as if this is, you know, I mean, this is not going to solve what is happening here. So that was a meeting of the converted talking to the converted. And I don't want to have anything to do with that sort of meeting. So I want to present some problems and issues for us because we've got a lot of work. We have the fight of our lives on our hands, not just to get back to Europe, but to defeat the right-wing pressures that have got us into this position, from the media to the nature of contemporary capitalism. So if we ask ourselves, how has this come about? I think the first thing that we need to, to register is this is not the story of an old state worn out by its conservatism. We are not looking at the traditional picture of British decline. We are looking at a breakdown. Uh, and this breakdown is beginning to take personal form, if I can just say, I mean, I was talking last week to somebody who is a civil servant, not in one of the ministries directly um, I think in Ministry of Education, so not directly involved with Brexit, who was saying that the, her colleagues in the five ministries that are burning out, there's alcohol abuse, they're smoking, they're working, they're resigning. None of them believe in what they're doing. But even worse for them, they're not getting clear instructions from the ministers. A civil servant can do a job that they don't agree with if, they, if they're working to political uh, uh, bosses who are clear about what the purpose and strategy is, but they aren't even getting that. So there is a sort of sense, a literal physical sense of breakdown within the, those who are preparing for these negotiations, which is one of the reasons why they're being so badly handled. But this is the breakdown of an energetic state system, an ambitious and energetic ruling system which has sought to renew itself and has failed to do so. And now a revolt against that failure, called the complicated revolt against that, that failure. And if I can just talk about two aspects of the way this, this regime, it's one of the things I discuss at some length, I don't want to go over all of the arguments in the book. One of them uh, uh, occurred under New Labour. I mean, obviously, you know, Thatcherism was an attempt at renewal, and there's a classic thing that, that, that Blair um, and then Brown uh, took on the impetus of Thatcherism, gave Thatcherism a, a more human face, but were part of that same attempt at economic re renewal and revival. But there was a particular political one um, which New Labour was responsible for, which was the decision taken by Blair after 9-11 to throw in his lot, or the country's lot, with the United States, with Washington, and to try to create, and it's very clear in the memos, the private memos that the Chilcot uh, um, inquiry published, writing at some length to Bush that the American world order is now being under construction, focused on victory in Iraq. So we exist here in terms of Great Britain, with a state which is used to being a winning imperial state that fights good wars. And, and the defeat in Afghanistan and in Iraq, although covered up by the sense of withdrawal, were extraordinarily profound and important psychological defeats. They were a failure of that attempt to, to create an Anglo-American world order in which which would be a triumph. And if, 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 as in Blair's dream, 
um, our prime ministers had gone to Baghdad to be greeted, hailed by the masses uh, as their saviors and as introducing democracy and as dominating the Middle East, we would not now have Brexit. We would not now have a sense of a regime that didn't know how to run itself. So that we're looking at the end, in terms of the United Kingdom, of a long, successful imperial regime, which has now met a historic and strategic military defeat, which has not been honest or clear about, but which many people understand, and that one lot of us, if I may put it, who protested against the Iraq war and were appalled at having a regime that lied and misled its own people over, over one of the highest callings of the state, which is to go to war. But there was also a, an, an alienation, a, a loss of trust in it from, if you like, from its more traditional, perhaps conservative working class uh, uh, supporters, who they expected it to be deceitful, but they also expected it to win. They didn't expect it to go to commit uh, its troops and the lives of its people to, to a folly uh, that they had completely miscalculated. So that also was a kind of a loss of trust of those on whose support it had, it had drawn. And the second um, failure, breakdown if you like, of, of renewal uh, was what happened with the crash of 2008. This is more traditionally seen as one of the causes that lies behind Brexit. And here we had uh, you can see this in particular, the, the real theoretician of it was Gordon Brown, although its, it's actor, uh, uh, was, was its, its best presenter was, was Blair, was the decision by Labour, especially after the defeat of 1992, um, to, sorry, can you hear me in the back? Is that, am I, is that okay? Yeah. A bit louder, sorry. Uh, um, the, the, the decision, uh, if you like, experiencing the end of, of socialist internationalism and adopting what they call globalization as their means of having production, of giving jobs, of creating wealth, of creating a surplus which could be taxed, and therefore welfare becoming sort of something that you funded out of the profits of globalization and internationalism. And this is a system which I, we call neoliberalism. Is everybody here happy with the term neoliberalism? Do people, I mean, should I say a little bit about what neoliberalism is? Okay. So th there are two aspects of neoliberalism which are very important. And this is a really important aspect. Um, there, there are a, 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 a two aspects uh, to neoliberalism, only one of which I really want to emphasize. The one which everybody is more familiar with is the idea that what matters is money and not meaning. But the market is how you judge. Market and profit and competition is how you create value, and that's the only value that matters. Therefore, when it comes to areas of the state and the government, the aim is to privatize, to imitate the market if you can't privatize, to insert competition and generate enormous amounts of inequality out of that uh, system. So we're all familiar with the consequences of that in terms of austerity, very, very an enormous increase in salaries, the financialization of capitalism. But there's another aspect to neoliberalism which uh, was very important to its success. And this was not so much what it was economically, but how it did it. It turned itself into being the inevitable. It presented itself in terms of human nature, as our very nature is to be competitive, and it wasn't therefore a function of government that we had these economic policies, but rather government was always the problem that got in the way of having what was the natural way of creating wealth. Um, and one example of this was when Blair said, you know, that there's no more, you can no more debate to the Labour Party conference in 2005, you can no more debate globalization than you can debate whether autumn follows summer. 
So we were presented with an economic system which was one of fatalism. We had to accept the logic of the market. Austerity, even when it clearly wasn't working, was being accepted in terms of the BBC, in terms of the media, in terms of the public logic, and right up to the point when Jeremy Corbyn said, sorry, I don't think, I don't think this works. Right? It, was, it was seen as the common sense, the only thing you could do. You have to pay down your debts. And that element of neoliberalism it w w was, if you like, the, the, the ideological element that made it hegemonic, that made it unquestionable. It made it the ruling order. And it's something that the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats, and the Labour Party all shared. And the reason I emphasize this is, and I will come back to this point, is that take back control while it was being presented to us uh, by hedge funds and it, while it's funded by, by people who are, in a sense, the most extreme exponents and personifications of the neoliberal order, as an ideological statement punctures, it bursts, it, it fractures the whole concept of the inevitability of the political system, political economic system that we are being presented with. It's saying, no, actually, the outcomes that we are living with are ones that should be subject to our own government. And that's something that we should hold on to. That was, if you like, a democratic gain out of the Brexit vote. So if I could put it like this, when for reasons, historic reasons, which you could go into, but I think people are relatively familiar with, uh, the, for, but for contrived, if you like, inner party reasons, people were presented with the choice of the referendum. Uh, they looked at this system. This wasn't like, do I choose between two parties, both of which are relatively close to each other in their social and economic policies? Some of this, some a bit of that. Some are more sounder on the economy. Some are better at looking after the health service. It wasn't a kind of a choice between, between parties that are seen as relatively equal. There was a decision to be taken which was more or less, do you want, us to, do you want to carry on being governed in the way you are being governed? And after the Iraq war, after years of austerity, after the failures uh, that followed 2008, after the enormous increase in inequalities that happened with quantitative easing, when the, the bankers saved their economic system and increased their wealth, while precarity and debt and w uh, uh, increased enormously and wages flatlined, asked that question, people said no. We don't want to carry on as we are doing. The form of that answer it's, it's the wrong answer. That they, they, in a sense, have turned the screw. But that impulse that we're not going to carry on like that is one that we, we should be, that if, if, uh, uh, it, it's if you, it is, if you like, a justified and positive thing to have done. So we have a great democratic moment that is leading us to a democratic disaster. And that bittersweet aspect of the referendum is something we really need to face up to and, if you like, embrace and, 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 and come back on. Um, but all these issues, if you like, they, they, and however much they, they shaped the, the, the resistance to how we carry on in terms of, if you like, this democratic formula of take back control, um, so you have, you have the, the military aspect, you have the strategic aspect, you have also the failure of the left to produce another vision of Europe, and you, you have the nature of the European Union itself, which I'm not going to go on to here. We can have to talk about that in, in our discussion, and its undemocratic nature. Now, all these factors were true in Scotland, but Scotland voted to remain. And all these factors were true in London, although London, if you like, gained economically more, but nonetheless the political aspects were true, and London voted to remain. And the Brexit vote 
was driven by what I call England without London. And England without London voted by 11% majority. Wasn't a narrow, I mean, there was a narrow majority here for Leave, but this, the England without London was, the, uh, was overwhelming. And it was in every single region of England without London. The, 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 the uh, majorities varied, but from the wealthy South to the impoverished Midlands and North, there was that English vote. Now, this English vote is a very uh, uh, difficult and, for me, quite an embarrassing thing to talk about because it didn't take the form of English nationalism because English nationalism, as you're probably very familiar with, takes the form of Britishness. Uh, and I was talking about my book with a, a very good critic who I like very much, and uh, I said to him, uh, he said, you know, well, I don't agree with you about um, England. I'm a British patriot. And he didn't say, part of the argument in my book is, well, why don't we all just become independent countries, all of us together, in Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England? He didn't say, I'm a British patriot, I don't like your solution, because he is, obviously, he was uh, very, very much against Brexit. He said, because I'm an English patriot, I don't need to bother with your analysis. Um, So I gave him this example, which I think is a rather um, striking example of the, if you like, of evidence of the English nature of this vote. Lisa Nandy, who's a Labour MP um, for Wigan, uh, and it, she wrote a rather good piece, a, a talk called England Beneath the Surface, talking about the nature of English towns, <laughs> the loss of young people from English towns, and uh, uh, the, the English towns that voted for leave. So Wigan is about 95,000 people, and I just thought of comparing Wigan to Paisley. So like Wigan, Paisley, Paisley produced 90% of the world's cotton thread in, at the end of the 19th century. So Paisley is like Wigan, it was a great proletarian industrial town, now in severe decline. In Wigan, the working men's club has been demolished and replaced with the McDonald's. In Paisley, even the McDonald's is closing down. Both towns, for depressed working class areas, quite a high turnout in the referendum of 69%. And in both towns, there was an identical majority in the referendum of 64.3%. But in the English town of Wigan, it was for leave, and in the Scottish town of Paisley, it was for remain. Although people that have been in both, uh, haven't been to Paisley, say, you know, they are the same place in, in, in one historic sense, but that is that difference. And Paisley and Renfrewshire are represented by Mayhir Black, by a young SNP uh, a candidate, a, a, a public MP in, 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 the, in the House of Commons, and, and there was some sense in which they trusted their own political class to represent them, and their political class said, vote, remain, you're mad not to do it, and they did so. And that trust is lacking in Wigan, and that, that there is a, fa uh, in, uh, there's a, a self-confident, self-believing English uh, uh, working class there, but they are not represented, and they took it out on the system. So this is uh, what we are dealing with. And that brings me to Wales, because obviously when I present this theory, people then say, well, what about Wales? And I don't yet have a good answer on, on Wales. So um, there, there's, there's perhaps one thing I would say about it, because I just want to just uh, to share this and then to listen to um, some of you just very briefly. And that is how narrow it was. So it's, it's a, a majority of 83,000 out of a vote of 167, 1,670,000. And people say, and this is something I'm asking, not uh, uh, that there's been as in the English towns, quite a loss of young people from Wales, is that right? 
Um, and if you lost 100,000 people over the last young people under 25s, then that is a very big generational uh, uh, aspect, you know, that they would have probably voted 80%, 70 to 80%. That would have been your 83,000 uh, majority. So there is that generational aspect, because while I've emphasized the national aspect, I would just say this before I come to the five who I've said. Um, in, in the longer term, some form of reversal of Brexit is, is, you know, is going to take place demographically. There's one figure which has not been shared very much, but which I was working out when I was working through the figures after the referendum. Young women under 25 voted 80% to remain. That's the only figure that, that hit, that went across above, out of the 70s. And the future is feminine in, uh, politically, and we can see this coming. And that, that figure is, is one, just to bear in mind, so however bad you feel at the moment, just if you're feeling really bad, just remind yourself of that, that one figure. So I'm going to talk first to, to ask John, John Osmond, one minute. You know, what I would say is that uh, when you think of Wales, they're not, not perhaps in comparison with Ireland and Scotland. Uh, to some extent, we're coming from a similar place in relation to uh, the big brother next door in England. I mean, our problem is we're right next door. Right. <laughs> um, and so that has all sorts of implications. It has implications in terms of the economy, politics, and everything. Um, in particular, I suppose, in the, you know, the, the fact that the, the penetration of the London press and the media at young Wales, which is a significant more than it is in Ireland and Scotland. Um, but then you have to look uh, at what's been happening over the last generation. And um, in terms of broadening uh, the devolutionary movement, I mean, over the last hundred years, we've been with Ireland. Um, and um, part of all that is, is um, um, in terms of this particular argument and issue, is the relationship of the country with the European location. Right, you've got worth in one minute. Right, I'm just trying to end it. But, uh, but then in, the, that notion of European location has penetrated into our intelligentsia. <laughs> Way that it has by the ideology of the social movement or the rest of it. The similar um, case here, but it's much weaker. Right? And um, so, and, you know, we haven't had time. 20 okay. years is not time. That's very good. It's not to develop. But it will come. Right. Okay. Rachel. Hi. Yes. Um, Are I... people here, here, John, at the back? Stand up, stand up, right. Okay. Um, well, one thing I'd like to do is just draw on one of the points that you made and press that point about and the lack of a distinctive media in Wales. So in Wales, we do have, there is a, a distinctive relationship between Wales and the European Union, financially, economically, culturally, politically, and it's something in the run-up to the referendum we simply didn't hear, because in contrast to Scotland, where they've got a very much more established, developed Scottish press, we do have the dominance of uh, London-based media. So that's the one point I wanted to right. uh, to press. But you don't feel English. The people here don't feel English. They didn't vote in the same way as England because they felt English. Uh, but did they feel British? Yes. So David Rowland Davis. Um, hi, I, I was part of the, uh, the Labour Remain campaign, so I come from that, from that prison. And just to reinforce what you heard about the press, I heard the poison of the Daily Mail across Welsh doorsteps yes. uh, in all the places you would expect. Mm -hmm. And I think the demonisation of Europe uh, 
um, by that press over decades, not just in the course of the campaign. And then if you look how Wales voted, I suspect that on the one hand, we would love it to affect the false sense of security, because with the amount of objective blood money, I think the political class in Wales, <coughs> we would just get there on the ground, so we've had so much money and so much benefit. Yeah. Blue signs everywhere, heads to the values road, lots of buildings all over the place, that that would see us through. But the reality is that Wales then behaved quite similarly to So Cardiff was London. You look at the, the voting Cardiff, we piled in behind the, behind the Remain campaign. Um, if you look at the valleys, which are in yeah. a city of a million people, it's, it's in a linear settlement, it's a city of a million people. This effect is they were told immigrants were taking their jobs, suppressing their wages, overwhelming their public services. Um, that the EU was stealing their money, and if only we could deal with all that, then, as you say, that all the disaffection they felt could be addressed. And then, one of the other differences in Wales, well, Welsh-speaking Wales, was powerfully remained. Now, it's tell you why that, that is, I don't know what it was. And then the other part of it we had is where we had large numbers of um, retired voters coming into parts of Wales who brought their conservative voting behaviour with them. Um, they voted heavily uh, in favour of... These are English retired. Yeah, but what I would rather look at is the Labour's force, they tend to bring their voting habits up for 40 years ago, what would like to change just for the same time. Uh, 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 we are? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm coming from completely different perspective, of course, as an EU citizen, still, uh, Dutch citizen. Um, so, I mean, the thing is, with Wales, what, what surprised me so massively is the lack of understanding of what actually Europe was. I mean, even now, yeah. I sit in rooms where people have absolute, say, Brexit is a scandal or whatever, you Europeans are not. You're a European, you're defending <laughs> Europe, and you still think it's something other. So the whole sense of the EU being another was very, very strong if I don't have that campaign. But they also know the people I spoke to to have this sense that it wasn't going to happen. You know, we're going to give them a kick, we're going to give them a push, it's not really going to happen. You know, they were quite a lot of contradictions. Somebody said, I'm going to vote out, but I don't think they'll ever let us go. She was probably right. And then finally, I think, as somebody reminded me of the stigma of EU funding, which of course played heavily in the 90s. Wherever that this, the stars of the, of the EU stood, there was a failed scheme, there was a failure in the community, there was a failure in the well, really not, There was a stigma, it's a stigma to get EU. Well, it, it like is. Like the way it shows that your community has failed and needs this support. And quite a few of the schemes that were funded also right. didn't often deliver what people had hoped for. So I think that also didn't, didn't play, uh, uh, play a part in that. But I think mostly it's the lack of understanding what the EU stands for, what their relationship, what it is, what it actually did. Who made decisions where and what? You know, and I think that that right. Okay, Richard. Okay. Um, you said you've got all the facts. Well, yeah. Um, I've been uh, looking at this, working on this for a while now. Uh, three quick points. First, Anthony is empirically correct. In England, Englishness and anti-European sentiment are very, very strongly linked together. The more strongly British you felt, the more exclusively British, not English you felt, the more likely you were to vote Remain. That is empirically correct. So what happened in Wales? Two points. The first we never want to talk about, but the Anglicisation of Wales. 22% of the Welsh electorate feel strongly English. They voted like the English in England. Okay? That's an empirical fact. Uh, the, final, the, the third point is that those anti-European sentiments associated with Englishness in England are associated in Scotland and in Wales with Britishness. Yeah, Britishness means different things in different parts of Britain. And in the main, in Wales, Britishness is associated with the anti-European sentiment associated with Englishness in England. I can, I can show you this in great detail, right. but that's basically the story. But, but do you, I mean, do you see, where, where do you see the lines of change if you're looking at the, that empirically? I mean, do you see any, any changes since the referendum? And is there a generational aspect to this? Uh, in, in England, we don't have any of the data that I would like in order to actually tell the story of what's happened uh, in Wales since uh, the referendum. But there's clearly a generational aspect to it. Right. But the identity dimension trumps everything else, including 
class. So, you know, the, somebody pointed to Gwynedd. Uh, I mean, Gwynedd is one of the poorest areas in Western Europe. Yeah. Welsh, you mentioned young women voting remain. Welsh-speaking Welsh identifiers, 16% of those voted leave. The demographic group I found in the UK, which was most pro-European, is Welsh-speaking Welsh identifiers, who tend to be poor. Okay, so the left behind thing doesn't work. Yeah. That, that misses the, what was going on in terms of identity. Yeah. And I think this is very helpful because it also reinforces this point about money, which is, and the, the one of the reasons that the, the uh, one way I put it in the, argue in the book, I think I show in the book, is that the, um, the Remain campaign ran a campaign saying we don't like Europe very much either, but we can't afford to leave. Uh, and so you were presented, if you looked at the government's pamphlet, by you know, two forms of Euroscepticism, the real thing, right? <laughs> or a half-hearted thing, which was, you know, we don't like it, we're not for it, and they absolutely sat on any attempt to say migration is positive, Europe is positive. They did their, 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 their surveys and they said this is not going to work with the crucial people that are going to judge things in terms of, you know, in their hearts they want to, to, to leave, but they're going to follow their brain and their pocket. And so they pitched the whole thing in financial terms. And one of the things, I mean, the, the book, the memoir by Craig Oliver, who was uh, Cameron's um, uh, sort of PR advisor, and he just says, you know, we won the economic argument. Uh, but the problem was it wasn't the economy stupid, <laughs> right? People were not, had people heard it, and the statistics show that a vast majority of those who voted Remain gave the economic reason as their as their, their number one reason, which means that all those people, who so I'm very interested about the subsidies, you know, they, they knew the economic argument. They just said, fuck that. I mean, that's not, that was, that was their response. So do you think Wales, there's some analysis, you're going to ask this thing, that, uh, that <coughs> the opinion in Wales is shifting? Is there any evidence of that? Yes. Strong, strong evidence. Yeah. Can you, do you know what the figures are? I mean, is it shifting more? There's a slight shifting in, uh, across, I've seen UK figures as a whole, but, you know, there's still, there's still margins, not like 10 or 15% shift. Is there a bigger shift in Wales? So you're not in a situation where you can say, Wales now says we've got to remain. You couldn't yeah, well, stand up yeah, and say so that. Five points. The latest polling from yesterday is a five point advantage or remain. Right. Remain. Remain. It's not decisive. It's bouncing around. It's bouncing around. Right. So, but it's a 7% swing. It's not a 15% swing. It's yeah. a 7%. It's not this. It's something. But, I mean, it's not. It's okay. Well, that's very helpful for me. It may not be very helpful for you, but it's very helpful for me. Thank you. Um, so what all I want to uh, end with is, is the question of where we, where we go next. What, how do we, what do we argue here? Now the simple answer, and perhaps this might work more strongly in Scotland, is to say, look, you know, Wales, uh, uh, the Welsh economy, given, you know, Scotland has its own finance centre and so on, the Welsh economy would obviously be better off if, there was, if Wales was independent. Wales is in a much better position even than Scotland to be independent from uh, uh, the United Kingdom. And, and perhaps the best thing to do is to push for uh, a Welsh independence in the way to try and build a Welsh independence movement. Now, I suppose that was my kind of instinctive feeling when I said I would come here. That's what I wanted to discuss. And I think partly because of Catalonia, but also because of what is happening in Scotland, I'm having some doubts about that argument. And the reason for my doubts is that what, what has happened, which is, I think, very clear over the last 25, 30 years, is that globality, the glo globalization that we are now familiar with, has permitted and encouraged new forms of nationalism. And those, that, this growth of nationalism is a healthy, and economic, political, and social response to globalization. 
But the nationalism that is coming there, this kind of civic nationalism, it's not a sort of military bellicose uh, uh, sort of taking on the world nationalism. It's a nationalism which is in a way about participation. And one of the things the European Union has done is to permit and, if you like, encourage that kind of smaller nationalism. And when uh, the Czech and the Czechs and the Slovaks separated by agreement, both quite easily locked into the European Union. And in fact, the Slovaks have benefited more from that process. So the, the, the power of Scottish, the Scottish uh, nationalist movement was about joining. It was a better way to be part of the world. That's why this point John Osmond's made, that Scottish independence, Scottish national SNP came alive when Alex Salmond switched the party from being anti-EU to being pro-EU. And, and your, your classic British politician would say, well, you can't be independent and in the European Union. And I heard them even saying that about the Irish. But if you talked to people from Ireland, they felt being in the European Union was fulfilled their being Irish in a way that being not being in it, but being kind of subordinated to the United Kingdom did not do. So we now, now if that is the case, the Brexit presents us with a problem. Because Brexit is a form of leaving. Brexit is a negative form. Brexit is an old-fashioned form of combative taking on the world. We're going to show you, you know, a global Britain, i.e. that this mistress that you can't have, Great Britain. This sort of that's the lure and sentiment of it. And that's one reason why it's going to fail. It's out of code. It's not about joining. It's not about participating. It's not about sharing, growing your sovereignty by sharing it where necessary. It's about you know, being in control of our own destiny, as the Brexiteer wrote yesterday, which is, you know, a, a form of breakdown, in my view. Um, and so, to try and leave a country that is leaving, when you have a European Union, which is uh, with countries like Spain that are very anxious about what, under what conditions you enter, is really to leave the world. And you can see why opinion in Scotland is extremely hesitant about sort of a, a, a sort of Brexit squared. So this simple answer seems to me to lead to a uh, uh, to a sort of a cul-de-sac, and that you're not going to gain the kind of popular support or response to it which you would you would like for it to be successful. But what we do need to leave we all need to leave, is the British state. Is the Westminster state, with its winner-takes-all politics, which means that you know, all of us are losers, and its subordination to the city, to hedge funds, and to finance capital. So what, what I think we should explore is whether there are ways in which Wales for Europe can try to seek to join with the Scots and with Londoners uh, and with the Irish, to join together to say, look, we must take, to take control, we've got to get rid of the British state. We need a, a together a, a constitutional process, a radical constitutional process of replacing the real source of our problems, which is not Brussels, it's Westminster. And so the question then is how can we do that? And this is where, I mean, having been, obviously, I was a key figure in Charter 88, but Charter 88, if you like, was a kind of a centrist. I mean, I'm not saying that in a bad sense, but it was an attempt to sort of break out of a, of a, of a negative polarization. And, 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 it, and it was, if you like, and it was certainly seen as quite a kind of centrist and reforming, um, let's, let's sort of just make the system work a bit better. But it was still kind of based, in a way, on the British system. We need to do something now. The, 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 the constitutional challenge is radical. And it needs to be a radical one, which is also taking on the financial and economic system from which this country is suffering and which the hedge funds that are driving Brexit want, want us to, uh, uh, to be subordinated to even more. So it needs, there needs to be, and this is something I've tried to talk to people in Corbyn's office about, a linkage between the resistance to the economic program 
that, that the country is now going, undergoing under the Conservatives for the last seven years, and a democratic response uh, to Brexit. Not just saying, you know, we should be in the single market, not to move away from simply the economic argument to taking on what is a how do, if we get our own democracy into shape, we can think about sharing sovereignty with Europe. I suppose that's uh, uh, the difficulty of the argument because we all want to get it over with and get back in, but actually, there's a huge this, this is a huge impediment. A state which has a great deal of loyalty and support and actually is drawing on that democratic argument. So we need to reverse those terms. And there are ways of doing this in terms of saying we want to have a constitutional convention selected, in my view, largely selected by lot, including political figures in it. We, and, and, and the way this, the only way that this would work is if um, we borrow, if you like, a lesson from the referendum which is that Parliament made the unique step of saying that the country's sovereignty would now be decided by a political force outside of Parliament, namely by referendum, by plebiscite. Of course, this was done in an arbitrary, ham-fisted fashion, which was highly manipulated, but nonetheless, it, it, it it created this precedent, which was, and, and we now see that, uh, we can see this in the contradictions, one of the things I go on about at some length in the book. The British Constitution, in terms of its founding principles, is now a broken thing. And parliamentary sovereignty in a number of different ways is now, in principle and in practice, uh, uh, broken. Uh, and one of the ways it was broken is by the fact, this embarrassing fact that, you know, your MPs are all voting for something they don't believe in. Because they have to, because they have assigned sovereignty to a referendum. So that there is already the principle established that Parliament can say to a, can, can give another centre of authority the right to restructure our sovereignty. And I think we need to move down that kind of a, uh, an approach to to, um, um, you know, to solve the situation we're in. And I've lost, I have a quote here, but I think it's not, I'm not going to start scrabbling around in my bag to try and find it. But one of the things that, that you might do to try and get people thinking in these terms is the last thing I'm going to say uh, before we open the discussion is this, that I don't know how many people here have read, I mean, you've been talking about the media, the Macron speech to the Sorbonne. And you've read Macron's book. We have one. So this is a really good, good turn. So this is a very remarkable speech. Now, I'm not an advocate of Macron, of the sort of, you know, French Blair and all that sort of stuff. But he did one passage in this speech, struck with extraordinary force. He basically said, I'm a great critic of the Lisbon process, which is the European, now effectively the European constitution, which was... Um, when the French and the Dutch voted down the Constitution, it was reconstructed by treaty, by arrangements of treaty, uh, in Lisbon. And therefore, they arrived. Uh, uh, Merkel was one of the key people. I mean, Juncker said, you know, we will proceed. If you say yes, we will proceed. If you say no, we will proceed. And the French, in, in their referendum on the actual Constitution, the, the uh, Chirac, sent the constitution about 250 pages to every household in France and they voted by nearly 60% to reject it. And the Dutch voted by over 60%, the most European country there is, to reject the constitution. And the, the European, uh, the leaders of Europe, including Blair, proceeded to treat referendum as one of Blair's advisors called me like vermin and proceeded with that constitutional document but simply, as Chirac said, taking out of it the word constitution. So this was, the, the Lisbon Treaty was created not, it was not just an undemocratic process, it was created in defiance of popular voting and popular sentiment. It was an anti-democratic document. And Macron stood up and said in the Sorbonne speech, what happened then was wrong. He didn't simply say, we mustn't do it again. He said it was wrong. He actually said the, the political structure 
of Europe, that Europe governs Europe, does not have legitimacy. And he then said, we now have to establish the legitimacy of European sovereignty. And he called for conventions to take place in all the countries of the European Union. Except he said, after we've done this process, the British will want to come back. But there's no reason why you in Wales shouldn't say to Macron, excuse me, can we have our, we can have a constitutional convention too. We want to be part of this process. But it's very important that although people now are saying because of what's happened in Germany, because of what's happened in Austria, because of the rise of anti-federalism, that Macron's project is finished, that there's no hope for an, an integrated federalism with with any kind of democratic legitimacy. Macron saying the only way to gain a European federalism and to gain a, a better Europe is through giving it democratic legitimacy. And it's a great tragedy, in my view, that we can't be part of that process. But that he's at least attempting that. And I think that's something where you could say, OK, we, we can go about a convention process here, but doing it as Europeans, working with other Europeans, and that then brings me also to the other, if I can say, DM25, which Yanis uh, Varoufakis has founded. And they also are working in a much more sort of intense way in terms of he's obviously no supporter of Macron bankers, but of trying to work through a European process, a shared cross-continental European process. So I think that you need to if you you know you need to be able to uh, educate people in Wales about what is going on in Europe this point that's been made is a very powerful one and 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 the fact that we don't nobody is nobody knows about what Macron is saying is an example of the fact that nobody is interested in this is the his, this is a historic issue if he loses we're likely to see Le Pen you know we're likely to see the rise of racism so th there are very big issues there which we be familiarizing ourselves so people start to think of themselves as being part of a European-wide political process by trying to Europeanize our own democracy in doing that. And that, it seems to me, is the way in which Wales can be for Europe. Thank you.